Please turn down your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. The title of the sermon is Outdoor Preaching. It's rather tempting to say, let's all get up and go outside now. That's not the point of the sermon. Please stand, if you would. In doing so, we express our reverence for God's written and infallible word and also distinguish it from the word of the servant who is sent to proclaim it. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God will endure forever. Now let's hear and heed it faithfully together. Acts 3, beginning at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's for the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Lord, we've come to that point now in which we still ourselves before your word. It's reading and it's proclaiming. And we know that apart from the work of your spirit, all of these words would fall lifelessly to the ground before us. And yet, because of your spirit, these words are life-giving. They cause the dead to be made alive by faith in Christ. They cause the living to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, our true head, that image which is defined by knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. And so we pray and now by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would be glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Covenant kids, I'm going to begin by talking about a game that some of you know and play, maybe at home, maybe even at school. And the game is show and tell. And you know what show and tell is. Older covenant kids, by which I mean adults, know what this is, uh, show and tell, where we take something to school and we use it as a little bit of a prop to tell something of the story of our lives, or we tell stories about our family or things that we like to do. 
Uh, but today before us in our text, there is something of a show and tell, not in a childlike classroom, but in the classroom of faith where the person and work of Jesus Christ are displayed and proclaimed before a watching world. This really is a wonderful text. It's a lot longer than it appears, but we're going to attempt to do it justice with the help of our outline that you have before you, first considering God's power, the context of preaching. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts because of the holidays, but if you remember from a few weeks back uh, what happened prior to this particular text when Peter and John heal the lame beggar, uh, the text that we have today needs to be seen in the light of that text. They are two sides of the same coin, or to put it differently, they're the same thing. The same day, same people, they are the same story. And the point is, here in Acts chapter 3, something remarkable and undeniable has happened that has been something like a version of show and tell. God has shown his power in order to tell of his glory in the gospel. In the last two weeks, we saw that a lame beggar had been healed and that this was done on the front porch of the temple, what is known as Solomon's Portico, where the beautiful gate would be found. Uh, it underscores a particular intention that God has, or to say it differently, uh, the purpose for which the healing was done, and that it was not simply for the sake of this man, but for many others. God healed, or he blessed one, if you will, for the sake of the many. A lame beggar was healed. Though surely a blessing to him, his healing was not narrowly for him. And this is very often the way, beloved, that God actually works. His blessings come not simply to us, but they come through us and they splash or fall upon other people. This is the way God often works in our own lives. He blesses us individually, but not narrowly for the sake of us individually, often for the sake of of other people as well. This is what we see him doing all over the Bible, like in a beautiful chapter like Hebrews 11, where God not only witnesses to his people, he also witnesses through his people. And so the point is simply this. God works in us. He blesses us, but not simply for us. So often it's also for those who are around us. In Acts chapter 3, God has healed a lame beggar on the front porch of the temple. I thought of beginning the sermon by asking this question, if walls could talk, what would they say? If these particular walls that supported what is referred to as the beautiful gate, if they could talk, what would they say? They would say that the name of Jesus was lifted up and glorified in this place on this day. Those walls of the beautiful gate would testify to the life of a man who has been carried to this spot his entire life. If you notice early in the chapter, we were told that not only was the man lame, he was lame from birth. And it tells us that he has been carried over and over and over to this very spot. The walls of the beautiful gate would know the name, would know the story, would know the plight and the plot of this man. <clears throat> when day after day, not only was he brought here, but then he was carried away in the very same way that he came, uncured. Day after day, not only was he brought there, he sat there and he begged. 
And some days were better than others. Some people were more generous than others. But on this particular day before us in our text, something different happened. On this particular day, two men came and took note of this man. And they had neither silver nor gold to give to this man, but rather they came in the name of Jesus. They healed the lame man who had sat at this spot for many days, arguably many years. If walls could talk, and if those walls could talk, they would lift up the name of Jesus. But is this not then the point, not only of this miracle, but of all the miracles in the Bible, to lift up the name of Jesus, to testify to the glory of God as it has particularly come in the fullness of time through Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the way that it always works in the Bible, this beautiful word and deed relationship that we've seen and even talked about before, that when God speaks and he gives new revelation of himself, there is always that attesting powerful display, miracles, the mighty acts of God, the mighty works of God that attend to the giving of the mighty word of God himself. And so not only has Jesus come, the word incarnate, but now he is sending out preachers. And as they go here early in the book of Acts, proclaiming this new word as what we call the New Testament is now being given, you have again that word and deed relationship where not only is God speaking, God is also acting. But as God acts and he speaks through Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, I want you to notice that amidst what God is doing, what Peter and John do not do. They do not take credit for it. They do not attempt to steal the show or usurp the glory of God. In fact, if anything, they do the exact opposite. If you look at verse 12, uh, when Peter saw that people were running together to them, he asked the question, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? The word is marvel. Why do you wonder at this? And I love the next question. Why are you staring at us? It's a little awkward. Neither our power nor our piety has done this. What a beautiful phrase. Neither our power nor our piety have done this. They do not take credit for healing the lame man. They do not draw attention to themselves, not even for a moment do they steal or enjoy the glory that has been hurled upon them. And even as others marvel and stare at them, they immediately almost try to mirror it away as they're pointing it upward toward heaven. And in this beautiful little sermon, this outdoor sermon in Acts chapter 3, uh, we really do see in many ways the goal of preaching itself, which is not to exalt the preacher but to exalt the name of Jesus, who sends preachers, believe it or not. And every preacher knows the temptation that was arguably felt by Peter and John at that moment to take, if you will, just a pinch of God's glory, to enjoy that moment in the limelight, even the confusion of the crowd that might have wondered, is it because they are so powerful? Is it because that they are so pious Is it really something to do with them? And the answer is no. But it is tempting to think it is by our wit or our worth, our power or our piety, that God causes good things to happen. But you know, as every preacher does as well, that this is just a lie that comes from Satan himself. 
one of my favorite, favorite Charles Spurgeon lines uh, is actually a description of a Sunday morning where apparently he preached one of his better sermons. And as he came down from the pulpit and began to walk out of the church through the, the side door that he was often used, uh, an older lady from the church kind of hurried over to meet him and said, uh, Master Surgeon, Spurgeon, sorry, it's a difference. Master Spurgeon, that was a very fine sermon. And he said to her, Madam, you can stop right there. Satan already told me. I appreciate the point. The context of preaching is the power of God, but the goal of preaching is the glory of God. There is nothing more, and there should be nothing less. Let's move on then and talk a little bit about uh, the content. The stage has been set, but what is it that Peter and John have to say? What is it that this particular sermon in Acts chapter 3 had to say as well? What is its content? Well, in short, you might say the gospel. But in long, we might say it is how the person and work of Christ has fulfilled what God spoke through the Old Testament prophets. Let's unpack that. Uh, the text here actually, uh, it, it puts its hands on, it quotes three different Old Testament verses or phrases. And we're going to deal with them each. The first of which is found in verse 13, where Peter and John use the phrase, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. That language there, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, this is beautiful summary language from the Old Testament showing not only was God a God to his people, but he was a God who worked from one generation to the next. Not simply the God of Abraham, but also the God of Isaac and as well the God of Jacob, the God who's worked from one generation to the next, the God of our fathers. It's a way of saying uh, the one who was their God and is yet today continuing as our God. It's a stroke of brilliance that Peter would use this language because what he is saying is that all the promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the fathers, all of those promises are now finding their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. Nearly every liturgy in Israel would use this phrase, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This was a standard part of Israel's worship. And it's his way of saying uh, that God has revealed himself and God has brought his son into the world to fulfill all those things. This is the perfect revelation of the son, that all the revelation of the Old Testament, all the miracles, they all point to this. And in a certain sense, if you think about what has happened already at Pentecost, we're in Acts chapter 3, which comes right after Acts chapter 2. If you think about what happened there, once again, God has revealed himself. There was not only a powerful display of the word, but even the work of God. And all of these Gentile people, all these people begin praising God as God calls the nations to himself. That is the point of Pentecost. God not simply drawing his own people Israel to himself, but even the nations as well. Now for a first time in history, not simply will Israel refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as our God, the nations shall as well. The nations are coming to the feast. The nations are entering that everlasting temple, all this because Jesus has come. But then there's the second text. 
verse 13 uses the language here of servant. The text behind it is Isaiah 53. Isaiah has this beautiful section in the latter part of the book uh, referred to as the servant songs. They speak of a servant who would suffer. They speak of a servant whose life would be laid, laid down like that of a sheep, who would bear the transgressions of his people. But not only would this servant suffer on behalf of the sins of his people, God would not abandon his servant. In fact, he would glorify his servant. He would lift his servant up. And Peter is making the point that Jesus is indeed that glorified, suffering servant. He came into this world in order to suffer, but he left this world in order to receive the glory that he deserved. Jesus is not only the servant described in Isaiah 53, twice in our text the word servant is used here as it is in verse 13, but the word in the Greek is literally child. It is a, it is a bit of a pun and a rather beautiful one. The servant is the son and the son is the servant. It is a beautiful choice of words. The son of God is the suffering servant of Israel. When you think about it, in some ways, it's actually mind-blowing. If you say it like this, the Son of God became the servant of sinners. The Son of God became the servant of sinners. As it said elsewhere, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came into the world, to fulfill what those servant songs spoke about. But notice how Peter puts it here rather pointedly to the audience. It was this Jesus that they handed over to Pilate to be crucified. If it's right to refer to this as something of a sermon, an outdoor impromptu sermon, now we're at the place where it gets uncomfortable. Now we're at the place where he's, he's edging in with the knife. It was this Jesus that they handed over to Pilate to be crucified even worse, in verse 14, he points out that when Pilate sought to release Jesus, you asked for a murderer instead. How's that for brutal honesty? Not only did you kill him, you traded him for a murderer. And all this was foretold by Isaiah. All this was fulfilled by Jesus, imagining the moment of self-realization when they come to realize that they too have played a part in this big drama of God's redemption, but their part is on the wrong side. They played the part of the bad guy, the enemy. They killed Jesus, and in doing so, traded him for a murderer. But there is more. Not simply was he killed, God promised and prophesied that he would be raised from the dead. Uh, if you will, this is the sweet crescendo in some ways of the sermon in verse 15, that this Jesus whom you killed, whom you handed over to Pilate, whom you exchanged for a murderer, what you did is seen in contrast to what God has done. He not only promised it and prophesied it, uh, he fulfilled it in raising Jesus from the dead. And of this, we are all witnesses, witnesses to the reality of the resurrection, witnesses to the fact of the resurrection. And here on this day in Acts chapter 3, witnesses to the power of the resurrection. For after all, what really was on display when this lame beggar was healed? Not the power and piety of Peter or John, but the power and piety of Jesus of Nazareth. 
That's the whole point. Verse 16 tells us that this really is God's version of show and tell. Showing his power, telling of his glory, putting on active living display the power of the resurrection before this watching audience that is gathered around this man whom they know and who has now been healed. It is God's power, it is God's piety that is truly on display in the name of Jesus. I want to pull that thread for just a moment. What's in a name? In Acts chapter 3, there are some beautiful names used of Jesus, some of them only here. Remarkable titles used of Jesus. I've told you that he's twice called servant in the text, but if you go down, even in many of your English Bibles, it'll have at the bottom a little note and say, son. As Peter uh, plays poetically with the fact that the servant is also the son, the son is also the servant. But then in verse 14, Jesus is called the holy and righteous one. What a beautiful phrase. In verse 15, he is the author of life. But as he has called those things, those titles are put in contrast to what they have done. He is the holy and righteous one, and yet you committed an unholy and evil act by having him put to death. He is the author of life, and you killed the author of life. What could be worse than that? What's in a name? Everything. If it's the name of Jesus. And what did the name of Jesus bring on this day? He who is the servant, who is holy and righteous, the author of life. I love uh, verse 16, at least to me it's even a little bit uh, funny almost. And in his name, and his name by faith in his name, notice the two different ways that it said, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man, and here's the phrase, perfect health in the presence of you all. He wasn't just kind of healed. He was really healed. And what would a perfectly healthy man look like? How fast could this man now run who his whole life had been lame? How high could this man now jump with perfect health, he who has sat on a mat the entirety of his life? Perfect health. It's an interesting phrase. Not simply strong, but perfect. Perfect health. Why this phrase? There's something to it. Don't lose it. Sinclair Ferguson makes the point about Jesus. Be with me here. Follow the thread from Jesus to this man. It'll make sense. Sinclair Ferguson uh, suggests that part of what we are to understand in the gospel is that Jesus is the first person to enter not simply into heaven, but bodily in the way that Adam would have enjoyed had Adam never sinned. He would have bodily been in the presence of God, enjoying perfect health, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, for all eternity, and it would have never ended. But what Adam failed to do, and therefore failed to inherit, Jesus actually did and is the first to inherit. He enters into heaven bodily and there enjoys everlasting, if you will, in his body, perfection, perfect health. So what does that mean for our text in this man? But on this day in Acts 3, when this man is healed, he receives a foretaste of heaven to come. 
His life becomes a moment in which the effects of the curse are not only reversed and he's brought back to neutral, he actually enters in, if you will, to that perfect health that awaits us in heaven. Who here has perfect health? The answer is no one. And even those who are pretty healthy, you want the good news or the bad news? The clock is ticking. And that so-called youthful health will soon expire. But the good news is, for those of us who know that the clock is ticking, perfect health, actively displayed in Acts 3. Perfect health, already enjoyed by the resurrected Savior, bodily resurrected into heaven, and what was only a foretaste and momentary a glimpse for this man, beloved, is what awaits the people of God. Life on the other side of imperfect health. Life on the other side of the effects of the curse. Life on the other side of the tyranny of that which comes to us as the wages of sin. What the man received on that day was a drop of the dew of heaven. And you should note, a temporary drop. Why? Because this man who is described in this one verse, but for a moment, standing before the crowd with perfect health, he did not enjoy perfect health forever. Right? Eventually, he laid down and he stayed down. As we all do. And yet, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, bodily, so shall we. That in many ways is the real point of the text. What this man enjoys temporarily is what Jesus and all of his people will enjoy eternally. What we experience now is temporary cross and crown, but what awaits us is an eternal weight of glory that cannot even be compared with this present evil age because this present evil age is just simply not worth the comparison. That's why the crowd marveled. Heaven came down that day. The power of of heaven came down that day. A foretaste of heaven came down that day in the name of Jesus. It's also why, beloved, I think we often minimize uh, this, it's also why the body is important. Your body is important. It's so important, God plans to raise it from the dead. In heaven, you will not float around like ghosts. In heaven, you will have a body just as you do now, but a perfected one that stays in perfect health, even as Jesus' own body does as well. They say that when young women marry young men, they do so hoping that those boys will change and eventually grow up. It's a great line. I'm I'm just struck by the absence of reaction on your faces. I'm going to say it again. I am going to say it again. They say that when young women marry young men, they do so hoping that those little boys will change and one day grow up. The flip side is also true. They say that when young men marry young women, they hope they will never change. That they will stay the same forever. I want you to think about it like this. When the bride of Christ enters heaven... She will be and will always remain not only beautiful, 
and in perfect health, holy, righteous, and fit for him. That is a beautiful thought. This is how Jesus sees his bride in the already holy and righteous in him, and the not yet to be perfected in holiness and righteousness, to be fit for all eternity, to glorify and enjoy him in our bodies, not leaving them behind with our bodies. And it raises one final question, which takes us to the third point of the sermon. How does this all happen? How shall we enter in? Well, the third point, God's grace, the consequence of preaching. Preaching has an effect. One of the things that takes a while to come to terms with is that in a certain sense, uh, everyone responds to every sermon that they hear. In fact, there's, there's no such thing as a sermon that does nothing. To some, as Paul will say elsewhere, it is the aroma of life, and it works life in its hearers. To others, it is the aroma of death, and it, in a certain sense, seals them in unbelief. Here, uh, you have a sermon that in some ways comes with its own application. Verse 17 begins it. The application of the earlier point. Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. Peter, in a certain sense, having put the pressure on for a moment, slightly relieves that pressure in telling them, I know that you did this in ignorance. You handed Jesus over to Pilate in ignorance. You asked for a murderer in exchange for Jesus in ignorance. God knows that you did this in ignorance. But at the same time that Peter tells them that he knows that this was done in ignorance, he does not pull the punch. And this also is very important. Ignorance is no excuse. Go to a foreign country and break their laws and tell them that you didn't know their laws and you are not innocent. Ignorance is no excuse. He commands them to repent. If you read our confession, Westminster Confession 15.1, it talks about repentance as a doctrine that no preacher is allowed to ignore or to neglect. Peter first calls them to repentance. And what is repentance? If not turning from something and to something else, they are to turn from not simply their ignorance, they are to turn to Christ. To say it differently, in this case, they are to turn from their ignorance and turn to the knowledge of Christ as Peter and the apostles are now revealing the New Testament will continue to reveal. They are to turn from their unbelief to genuine faith in Christ, placing all their trust and their hope in Him. They are to turn from their rejection of Jesus as Son of God and servant of sinners. Turning from rejection now to willful submission. But when you think about it, what is it that they ultimately have to repent of? It's arguably the worst sin named in the Bible, they killed Jesus. I'm going to come back to that in a few moments. But what do they have to repent of? Killing Jesus. This is the original audience. What could be worse than that? What sin or crime could be worse than that of killing Jesus? And at the same time, in many ways, it is the heart of unbelief. Scripture will elsewhere say that in our unbelief, we too are guilty of what was done to Jesus. We are just like the crowd that Peter is preaching to. It's as though we ourselves not only assented 
to his being murdered, but we asked for a murderer instead. Peter attaches to this a warning, and this is the third and final Old Testament allusion. It comes from Deuteronomy 18, where there Moses speaks about another prophet like him that God was going to raise up in time. In Acts 3, Jesus is clearly identified as that servant, as that prophet that Moses spoke about. It is Jesus whom God has raised up. Moses said that this prophet, this servant, would not only speak, he would also act. He would do his own version of show and tell, but when he would do it, it was no game. Those who would listen to him by faith would receive what he calls times of refreshing from the hands of God. This is both now and not yet. Is that immediate release that comes with pardon and forgiveness. It is that sense of union that we already have with Christ, even now at this very moment, times of refreshing. But it is also not yet. It is that final time, that final deliverance, the final chapter. But those who do not listen, will not only, there's a lot of negatives here, not only will they not receive the blessing, they shall receive the curse. Moses spoke very clearly in Deuteronomy 18. Those who listen to the servant God will raise up shall be blessed, and those who reject his word shall be destroyed. This is what all the scriptures are pointing to. The gospel dilemma, you might call it. That God has spoken climactically and finally through his son, that all the threads of the Old Testament have been gathered together and they tie one perfect knot, which is the gospel itself. And those who listen to it shall receive everlasting times of refreshing from the hands of the Lord. They shall enjoy perfect health in bodies that never perish. They shall enter the other side of the veil and abide in the presence of God for all eternity. But those who reject his word shall enjoy the opposite. And they will not enjoy it at all. It will be the everlasting curse that God has promised upon his enemies and those who reject him. It is to pour out the judgment that would have been righteously deserved by all those who rejected Jesus, who murdered Jesus, and in exchange for a murderer. Peter labels those who are listening here in his audience with a wonderful phrase. He calls them sons of the prophets, sons of the covenant. What does it mean that he uses this language? It's beautiful. It's his way of saying... You're a part of the story. The Old Testament has funneled down to this very point. You are a part of the story. On the one hand, you are sons of the prophets. You've received that word handed down from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Moses, all the way through the prophets, the servant songs coming down that day. You are sons of the prophets. You are inheritors of the covenants. You are a part of this story even your guilty hands. And yet, there are those who are outside whom God is drawing in who are referred to here at the end of our text as all the families of the earth. Verse 25, the whole world is drawn into the story of God's redemption. The whole world plays a part. You're either on the side of the sun or you're an enemy of the sun. And in many ways, this is the point of preaching. To bring us to a clear understanding of which side it is that we stand upon. To show and tell the glory of God in Jesus Christ 
And to ask of you this final question as I seek to ask it here as well. If Peter came and proclaimed that all the scriptures have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that the point of these miracles is to show and tell the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and that a proper response is one of repentance and faith, it does beg the question, beloved, have you repented? And are you repenting? Have you believed? And are you believing? Here's a very encouraging way to put it. If these listening today in Acts chapter 3 had committed the worst sin and crime imaginable, and yet could be forgiven, pardoned, and even promised times of refreshing, how about you? Is there anyone who's committed such a crime that they cannot be forgiven in the name of Jesus? Is there anyone who cannot be ultimately healed in the name of Jesus? I don't mean that in a charismatic sense, but I do clearly mean it in the spiritual sense. And finally, I want to come back to the beggar. Because he did something I think is just really sweet and touching. If you go back to verse 11, what is the beggar doing? Clinging to the preacher. Now the point of this is not to stay right after the service. I, I want like a hug line up here at front. Although I'm from the south, and you know I'm kind of a hugger, so I'm not really above that. But I do want to make something of it. Why is this man clinging to Peter and John? He's clinging to them because he was healed. He's clinging to them because the power of God had just touched his life. But what do you think the point is? Well, the point is not to cling to the preacher, is it? but rather to the one who sent the preacher. In fact, the point is not uh, to cling to the word of the preacher, but the word incarnate that the preacher is supposed to preach about. I might imagine this was one of the most awkward sermons in the New Testament. Why? Because technically, if you look at the text, you're not told when this lame beggar, now clinging to Peter and John, let go. This is not simply an impromptu outdoor sermon. Uh, this man is bear-hugging Peter and John. And we're not told when he lets go. And there's something beautiful even in the ambiguity of that. But we should cling not to the preacher. We should cling to the word of God and to the word incarnate. That is the entire point of the text that is what God sent preachers to show and to tell the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you that you are pleased both to show and to tell of your own glory. We thank you that you sent preachers like Peter and John who came not simply to heal, but ultimately to proclaim the gospel. We thank you, O Lord, for the way in which the gospel has borne fruit in each of our hearts. But we do ask, O Lord, that on this day, when repentance and faith in the name of Jesus Christ have been proclaimed, that no one would depart from here in unbelief, that no one would think that they have committed such a heinous sin or crime, that they are outside the reach, the grip of the grace of God. 
And we ask, Lord, not only would you grant to us those precious gifts of repentance and faith, but that you would increase our repentance and our faith in a daily way that even we too might show and tell of the grace and glory of God in our own lives. And we do pray that as your people have been nicknamed a people of the book in the past, that we would be the same, that we would cling to the ministry of your word, not simply as it's proclaimed from pulpits, and even, even as we have opportunity to read it, to memorize it, and to practice it in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.